0: UFO Thinker Podcast. Hello and welcome to the UFO Thinker Podcast. My name's Frank, and let's get cracking. So basically, uh, today's episode is going to be a recent events. Again, I'm going to be talking about some of the things that have happened recently. Uh, but before I get into that, I'm just going to do a little bit of uh, explaining about a couple of things. If you don't want to hear the little preamble, you can just skip to the first recent events timestamp in the episode description. And as always, I try and do this wherever possible. There is timestamps in that description, so if you want to hear about one specific thing... Uh, that i'm talking about recent events wise you can just skip to that bit and also if you ever do want to listen back to it to check something that i said it's easy to find the actual bit so with that said uh, the bit that i wanted to explain was there was no episode last week as the eagle-eyed observers amongst you may have noticed Uh, basically i got really ill if you follow me on twitter you probably would have seen essentially i thought it was covid because i had very covid like symptoms at the beginning and and then actually it turns out that it wasn't COVID it was some kind of like I don't actually know what it was because I was so ill I couldn't actually go to the doctors and um, but yeah if you've been listening to the show for a while you'll know that I've had a bit of an unfortunate run of health issues over this last year and safe to say uh, that that bad run of luck continued unfortunately and I ended up. Um, I was in bed for the whole weekend uh, just like throwing up couldn't eat food or drink any water or anything really quite horrendous and I had like the worst sore throat that you could possibly imagine I've actually still got a sore throat it's just not going away um, and anyway yeah so the, the point is I didn't really want to I, I couldn't research anything I was in no fit state and I didn't want to just throw an episode together for the sake of putting something out so I just decided in the end to just not have an episode that week so it's the first time that's actually ever happened in the history of the show um, just over a year now and uh, I'll make it up to you guys this week with an extra bonus episode uh, so anyway with all of that said let's get into the actual recent events then uh, and we're starting with a uh, various outlets actually reported this but uh, a lot of what I'm going to be talking about is contained in an article on the debrief which is an excellent source of information about anything science futurism and UFO UAP related and um, so if, if anyone's not already aware of that website definitely check it out it is the debrief.org Uh, Bear in mind, it's thedebrief.org because I don't think debrief.org is is anything related. But um, yeah, thedebrief.org, excellent website. And this particular article is all about, basically, uh, a new unidentified aerial phenomena reporting procedures which are outlined in the amendment to the financial year 2023 NDAA. And the article says, Lawmakers in Washington have once again introduced an unidentified aerial phenomena amendment for the forthcoming Financial Year 2023 National Defence Authorization Act, NDAA, an annual piece of legislation that provides the budget for the Department of Defence. Representative Mike Gallagher on the House Armed Services Committee has introduced an amendment that builds on the historic gains passed in the Financial Year 2021 NDAA when the UAP task force was established and which mandated the reporting of UAP events. So the NDAA, what exactly is that? I thought I'd just dig into it a little bit, just for anybody who is perhaps not so familiar with what it actually is and and what it means and all the rest of it. It's always good to have that bit of clarity, even if you do know most of this anyway, just to kind of reiterate. So regular listeners will remember me talking about this last year. The uh, NDAA is the name. For each of a series of United States federal laws specifying the annual budget and expenditures of the US Department of Defense, uh, representatives can submit amendments for inclusion in this bill, which are then reviewed and may or may not get kind of changed and rewritten slightly before eventually being signed into law. It's a bit like in here in the UK, we have the Ministry of Defence, the MOD, and Ben Wallace, uh, you know, along with a few other people as well. Basically, have to kind of submit um you know a request to government of look this is what we want to spend money on as the ministry of defense this is where we want an increase in money if possible this is what we're going to try and cut to save money blah 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 and then they sort of negotiate that with the government in terms of actually getting access to public money to spend on the things that they want to spend the money on for example this year we've had quite a significant increase in that um which has been authorized by the government as a result of the various things that are going on in the world And it's just like that in the the States as well with the NDAA. It's a very similar thing. And last year's NDAA actually had some very significant UAP related things in it. and The previous year, 2021 did as well, which was the one that included things like the UAP task force being established and whatnot and mandated the reporting of the UAP events last year the 2022 NDAA um, had the Gillibrand amendment which included lots of significant requirements for the UAP topic including the requirement to have a collection and analysis of data into a central repository, establish a science plan, evaluate any links between UAPs and foreign governments or non-state actors and very importantly to report these findings Trans, in a transparent way to congress so that the public can actually have access to the information and so on and there's been some progress to fulfilling those requirements of the Gillibrand amendment but the AOIMSG, the office which basically ended up being given the task of fulfilling these requirements has been extremely slow to get going and has led to many questions as to whether or not it actually has sufficient resources to fill the re- fulfill the requirements as laid out in the Gillibrand Amendment. But anyway, <clears throat> let's not go down that tangent. Long story short, the previous NDAA had some pretty big impacts on the topic and and it really shapes how the year kind of like plays out after um, the NDAA goes through. Uh, you know there's a lot of significant things which affect how everything shakes out over the course of that following year and and this year's NDAA looks like it's kind of going in that direction too some some pretty big things for uh, to keep an eye on Mike Gallagher is basically the person who's put this amendment into place and Mike Gallagher was kind of the hero of the congressional hearings which took place recently as well historic first congressional hearings in over 50 years where experts from the pentagon were actually brought in uh, to actually have to answer questions in, in front of a congressional committee and uh, Mike Gallagher was one of the ones who really asked some very important questions about Malmstrom Air Force Base incident where UFOs shut down nuclear weapons and uh, the Wilson memo, which is a, a leaked document which uh, talks about crash retrieval programs and things like that. Obviously, regular listeners, if you're well in the topic, you'll know all about those and um, I've talked about them in quite some detail over the the previous episodes of the last couple of weeks. and anyway, with Mike Gallagher. Here he is again and now he's, he's popped up again adding an amendment to this NDAA which is very very interesting. So among the actual key elements that are included within the bill's language um, we can we can go into a few of those little details. So non-disclosure orders and written agreements will not prohibit the disclosure of UAP information to the UAP task force or the office. Now I think the language there is deliberately kind of keeping options open to an extent because the UAP task force or the office it's because there's still some confusion about the actual office that that needed to be put into place. The UAP task force was basically a temporary measure until a better office was established. But there is some wrangling going on as to actually getting this office off the ground, whether it's even going to be called the AOIMSG. And as, as I mentioned earlier, it's still all a bit up in the air, really. The congressional hearing was actually supposed to be largely about figuring out where the progress is with this office but actually a lot of the questions didn't end up being about that in the end anyway um but you know we'll have to just see how all of that plays out obviously it's not the easiest thing in the world to uh, to get up and running but definitely some feet dragging going on there so the way that this um a particular bit of wording here links to that is it says um, non-disclosure orders and written agreements will not prohibit the disclosure of UAP information to whether it's the UAP task force or this new office. Um, but it's basically what it's saying there is that NDAs, non-disclosure agreements that various people who have witnessed certain Bits of data or classified sensor data, or have had access to special access programs that may relate to, to UFOs and UAP. That's been a big stumbling block because the people just can't talk about certain things. They they can't um, go into details about things that they've seen because of these non disclosure agreements NDAs. It's become a bit of a running joke in the uh, in the UFO world you know people are interviewed and they, they get asked a very pointed question about something and they just can't talk about it because of an nda and um, not to be confused with the ndaa which is a totally different thing as i was always mentioning earlier so that's very interesting that one of the stumbling blocks here to try and get access to what's really going on Gallagher is suggesting that we try and remove that so let's stop NDAs from actually getting in the way of the proper information coming forward to be able to understand the bigger picture of what's really going on here and which is very interesting we'll have to see how that legally kind of all plays out but uh, you know an interesting uh, development to be included for sure. The next one is that the intelligence community shall establish a system for reporting of UAP related information regardless of classification level to the UAP task force or the office. So again, UAP task force or the office keeping options open there. But the idea there is uh, the intelligence community shall establish a system. So we're talking about the CIA, you know, various different um parts of the intelligence community in particular, they need to have a, a system in place to actually report anything UAP related, regardless of classification level. So the it's basically ensuring, I mean, my interpretation of this, is ensuring that whatever central body within the US government is responsible for gathering information and trying to get to the bottom of what's really going on here with UAP, and what is actually known in secretive programs and things like that you know th- they will have access to even highly classified data and that there must be a system in place for that to actually get through to the UAP task force or the off, you know the whatever the central group is that are looking into this this mystery very important and I think it's a uh, you know uh, an excellent step forward if that indeed does happen whether or not the bearing in mind the public probably aren't going to get access to any of that information because if we're talking about um highly classified data coming from the cia from a a secret unacknowledged satellite that might get shared with the the the, i will just call it the aoimsg for ease of of, uh, speech um the aoimsg might get access to that and allow them to form part of the bigger picture but the public aren't necessarily going to get that so but it's it's obviously what we want is that AOIMSG or as I say whatever it ends up being called if it does get renamed we want them to have access to the top level of classified data coming from any of any of the various branches of the intelligence community so again a very good thing if that indeed does end up making it into the final NDAA and the last one then is language calling for the protection of witnesses that share UAP related information from liability as well as retaliation for the breach of NDA. So kind of doubling down there on, on what was hinted at in that first one, basically saying we want some kind of protection just in case, you know, the, there may be any legal ramifications for sharing certain bits of information. Maybe that's holding back the flow of information from getting to this, you know, UAP the AOMSG or whatever it ends up being called we need to make sure that the information can actually get to where we want it to be otherwise we're never going to be able to understand the full picture and part of that needs to be protecting witnesses that come forward and if if any NDAs need to be breached to be able to get the actual proper information available then we need to protect those people from basically give them you know an amnesty or immunity from prosecution and uh if you listen to the show a lot you might remember we did a an episode a little while back uh, with uh, my friend dj from uh, colin or uh, podcast and also lampy who is a lawyer who actually was able to go into some detail about how, how the legal side of it actually works with amnesty and immunity and everything so if you did miss that one definitely recommend to go back and check that one out it's, it's quite important information in there about how immunity and amnesty actually works from a legal perspective i learned a lot doing that episode anyway so moving on from that then so the debrief actually goes into a bit of detail about um what they call a hypothetical situation that may arise from this and the the way that that could all play out so let's let's dig into that because i thought it was quite an interesting little uh, sec- section on the end of the article so an analyst Working with an intelligence agency like the NRO, NGA, CIA, NSA, etc., has data relating to UAP that is within a sensitive compartmentalized information program (SCI program) or a special access program (SAP). That the UAP task force or the office members are not read into and therefore do not have access to. And just quickly before I move on from that to the next bit. I think this is really, really important because what we have to remember is I think sometimes it's, it's easy to simplify and just think, ah, well, the government know everything about this and, you know, they're not telling the public, you know, but think about it a bit more logically. The government is such a huge organization. What the actual UAP task force or the, uh, the, the AOIMSG or whatever the office ends up being called, those are, is a new organization. And the people who were running that and taking part in actually doing the analysis and trying to get to the bottom of this, they don't have access to some of these programs which are rumored to have ufo materials uh, you know databases on ufos who knows what else there's a lot of speculation about the extent of, of what is known and what is held etc um you know which can be all the way from fragments of material all the way to intact you know extraterrestrial vehicles depends kind of how far down the path you you think it goes but what what is for sure is that there are programs hidden away that the government is not acknowledging in terms of the public the what i say for sure i think that's for sure personally i mean they, they said for for decades that they had no interest and weren't looking into ufos and then it came out that orsap and atip you know existed and they had teams of people top scientists they have millions of dollars of funding to look into this topic so They've done it once before. I think it's fair to say that they're probably still doing it and probably have been all along. And it's the extent of that which is not really known. A lot of rumours swirl about what that extent actually is, but we don't really know. And what I'm trying to say is the UAP task force or the AOIMSG office, they don't know either. So what what this is all trying to, these new bits of language that are included in this NDAA is allowing this UAP task force or the AOIMSG to actually get access to the the bits of information that it needs and we'll see if, how it all plays out I suppose that'll be the interesting thing so as I say there what what the um uh, what the example given by the debrief is saying is that an, an analyst working for a, an intelligence agency has data that relates to UAP, but it's within a, a, a sensitive compartmentalised information programme or a special access programme, and the UAP task force or the office are not read into that those programmes and that do not have access to that information. But with the passing of the legislation discussed in this particular NDAA amendment, that agency analyst will actually be able to give that information to the UAP task force or the office without fear of violating their NDA non-disclosure agreement or reprisal from their chain of command or their employer. And the the intent there is you know, clearly put forth in this latest piece of drafted law contained within the Gallagher Amendment, which is Congress wants data shared with those tasked with investigating UAP. And there will be, you know, the idea is to break down that barrier so there's no more hiding behind security classifications or NDAs. And I think it's a, it's a fantastic idea. It, it follows up very nicely on what Gallagher was actually saying at at the hearing, which is about making sure this office, which has been mandated by Congress, you know, isn't impotent. You don't want to have an office that can't access the proper stuff, do you? You know, and it, it may well be that, you know, they've not been able to access the true extent of what's really going on. Um, there's a lot of other questions to be asked about the way that the handling of this office has taken place so far and the way that things were presented in the uh, in the hearing and whatnot. But one thing's for sure, we do want to make sure that, that that office, that group, is fully equipped to be able to get to the bottom of this mystery on behalf of Congress. And obviously Congress is on behalf of the, the public, who are genuinely interested in this so i think i consider that to be a very important step forward now the thing to bear in mind is the way that this all works with the amendments to the ndaa is the amendments uh you can submit an amendment if you're in a position to do so if you're a congressperson a senator and then what happens is that has to then get support and in this case it actually has already got support bipartisan support by the backing of Galeho, who is actually a, a, a democrat and Mike Gallagher is a republican so first of all it's got off to a strong start there with having that bipartisan support and then what actually happens is the NDAA as a whole has to go through um, the house of congress and then it has to go through the house of Uh, the senate and then it also eventually then ends up on the president's desk to be actually signed to be reviewed first of all and signed into law and last year the ndaa actually ended up going into the senate and then it was rejected and was sent back into congress for some alterations and then it went back into the senate so it's it's a bit of a lengthy process that it's still got to go through you know based on my understanding of the situation before it ends up actually being signed into law but it's a strong start and with the fact that it's got that bipartisan support i'd say it's sort of fairly likely that 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 is going to end up in the final in the final actual uh, ndaa which gets signed into law so we shall see how it all transpires but very very interesting uh, to see how that actually affects the the topic as we go along into next year so moving on from that not going to spend too long on this one but i did just want to mention it because i want people to be aware of this i find it absolutely fascinating the james webb space telescope so i have mentioned about this uh, towards the end of last year when it was launched i forget exactly the date that it was launched but i think it was around christmas time and basically what it is is that the most powerful space telescope that's ever existed in the history of the human race and it's basically the world's premier space science observatory. James Webb Telescope was launched, it went on a very um, long mission to be able to get to a point a million miles away from the Earth, because the further away it is from the Earth, the less it it has interference from the Earth and from various other things around, so it can capture can peer out into the abyss of the universe and capture detail the likes of which we've never seen before it's also got a very very complicated and in-depth shielding mechanism to actually protect it from the heat of the sun and the light of the sun so that the equipment can operate at a very very low temperature which is optimum for being able to look out further and and see things that we have never seen before and and learn more about our universe and um, the nasa website says that the web will solve mysteries in our solar system look beyond to distant worlds around other stars and probe the mysterious structures and origins of our universe and our place in it and basically today's the day that we actually finally get to see some information coming back from this particular telescope and yesterday actually at the time of recording this today is the tuesday and um yesterday last night there was an image unveiled by um joe biden of a particular cluster of galaxies which is smacs 0723 and this image is known as webb's first deep field and it was unveiled during a white house event on on monday july the 11th and um this particular image it covers a patch of sky and this this kind of blows my mind really imagine holding your arm out fully extended and putting a grain of sand on your finger holding it out and looking up at the sky the size of that grain of sand is the amount of sky that's covered in this image and when you look at it you can see that it's absolutely teeming with galaxies i mean we think of the solar system that we're in the distance from the earth to the sun and 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 that kind of thing it's just an unimaginable large distance you know and that's just our solar system then you expand that out to our galaxy like we can't really even imagine being able to travel outside of our galaxy and yet a tiny grain of sand held at arm's length If you're able to look into the size of the sky covered by that grain of sand, you would see there must be hundreds of other galaxies. According to this image, it's just teeming with other galaxies. And when you consider extrapolating that out to all of the other aspects of the sky, all of the other grain of sand size uh, spaces within the sky, it's just mind-boggling how enormous the universe actually is and it's really really quite remarkable i mean i've seen i have seen pictures like this before in fact there's there's bigger pictures uh, than that that i've that i've seen but the particular fascination is just it makes you consider the, the the sheer scale of what we're talking about with the universe and and there's a lot of questions that that brings up you know if you're thinking of it from a ufo standpoint like the likelihood that life could evolve on on one of those planets somewhere out there. I mean, it's even possible the sheer number of planets within our galaxy is vast. And then when you consider the amount of galaxies and I I mean, it's just numbers that I can't even begin to get my head around, you know? So when you think about the possibility of life of having arisen on, on one of those somewhere out there, it makes you think what the possibilities could be of that life you know what kind of life are we looking at there and but it also on the other hand it makes you realize the sheer size of the universe and maybe if there is life out there you know it almost feels a bit hopeless like are we ever going to be able to actually contact them because the distances are just so vast you know but then I suppose that goes into a a whole you could do a whole episode on just that so I'm not going to dwell on it for for too long but anyway this particular image is just the first and you can go online and check that image out and by the time you listen to this by the time the episode goes out all the other images will also be available as well because they've got a bunch of other targets that they've been aiming the telescope at so far and which are not actually unveiled at this moment they're doing a press conference today but as i said by the time this episode goes out and you actually hear it you'll be able to see those as well and um they've been described by the the few scientists that have had early access to the images as as really quite mind-blowing and humbling and i can't wait to see them very very interesting and it will be interesting to see as well this is just the first bits of data that are coming back from the james webb telescope so It definitely uh, is an area to keep an eye on if you're interested in, uh, you know, humans attempts to understand the universe that we live in with some of this uh, incredible equipment. But anyway, as I say, moving on from that, I probably will mention that in in an episode next week or whenever it might be. Um, to talk about the actual other images that get released because as I say at the time of recording we've only had that one image which I thought was particularly uh, amazing anyway but we'll see what the other ones uh, look like I can't wait to see them it's going to be later on today so I'm, I'm all excited about that that should be good to see anyway moving on from that we've got a a really interesting article by uh, Marek von Rennenkampf, who is somebody who's been quite active on UFO Twitter recently. Um, uh, a real sort of very detailed and... and- analyst on anything to do with ufo videos particularly the gimbal and some of the the tic tac and the navy videos i think is is kind of the main area that he's been digging into and he's been really going into detail contacting uh, the the experts who, who actually make these FLIR systems and debating mick west about um, various other skeptics and debunkers about you know their claims as to what's shown in these videos and uh, marik has actually had very significant progress in um, trying to demonstrate that the gimbal does show extremely anomalous movements the gimbal video one of the uh, navy videos and um, very very interesting i'll be be honest a lot of it's over my head in terms of the science and the, the the angles and all the rest of it but i find it really interesting to to watch and try and make sense of, of what they're talking about with all these calculations and and to me i find it very very convincing the gimbal analysis videos and 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 work that Marik has done on on the gimbal analysis definitely open my eyes up to what exactly is particularly interesting about the movement of that object and what makes it anomalous so anyway this particular article is in the hill and it is called Uh, stunned by ufos exasperated fighter pilots get little help from the pentagon and it is uh, described as kind of like an opinion piece and uh, it's in it's the which is a a very uh, well-established news site and it has to do with a lot of things to do with military updates and things to do with u.s policy and politics in general so very very interesting article and i've picked out a few little bits that i wanted to talk about Really interesting read overall, mostly about basically how these Navy pilots became completely exasperated trying to raise flight safety concerns about these objects that they were witnessing off the east coast of the USA. The article says, quote, in April 2014, four naval aviators narrowly escaped disaster. Just as they entered highly controlled airspace for a training exercise, their two FA-18F fighter jets nearly collided with an unidentified flying object. To the frustration of dozens of their fellow aviators, such a near catastrophe was inevitable. For months before and after the incident, air crews flying in exclusive-use training areas off the U.S. East Coast frequently observed unknown objects exhibiting highly anomalous flight characteristics. Despite despite the collision hazard posed by the UFOs, aviators lacked a formal mechanism to report the mysterious objects." So we're talking about something we've heard quite a lot of these things actually being pretty commonplace. You know it's not that we're hearing about once in a you know once in every like couple of years you hear something that people can't explain that that would be in itself quite interesting but that's actually not what we're hearing from various people who have who've actually you know been involved in this and been in those areas. Lou Elizondo has said that these things are happening almost on a daily basis and various other pilots who've actually been up there in those jets have claimed to have witnessed these things on an ongoing basis for years and it's very interesting that to me that we're not talking about something once in a blue moon we're talking about something that happens all the time and so much so to the point where these pilots are actually getting very concerned about you know an accident happening with one of these things there's there's stuff hanging around in the sky in a, a military training area i mean that has got to be concerning to anybody if one pilot was an outlier and said yeah you know what i don't really want to fly around in, up there in, in the military training area because there's there's weird objects hanging about you might think okay we better have a look at that but you know i don't know about this guy he sounds a bit dodgy we're not talking about one guy we're talking about quite a number of people you know top class pilots who are reporting objects to the point where it's actually a safety concern you know very very concerning stuff really if you think about it The article goes on to say quote with aviation safety alerts as their only recourse frustrated aviators and their commanders noted that the UFOs pose a severe threat to naval aviation and a critical risk to flight safety just before just days before the April 2014 incident the squadron's exasperated commander wrote that it is only a matter of time before this results in a mid-air collision a few weeks earlier the skipper of another east coast squadron warned i feel it may only be a matter of time before one of our fa18 aircraft has a mid-air collision unquote so people very concerned there and again multiple reports of the same kinds of things what are these objects look even if there are people out there that will say that it's drones there are people out there that will say that it's you know misidentifications of friendly aircraft and that kind of thing if that really was the case Don't you think that they would have got to the bottom of that pretty quickly and they would have, you know, been able to take measures to get these drones out of the sky? We know that the US has pretty advanced drone killing capabilities and it doesn't seem that that's what's going on there. But look, even if it is, even if there's some kind of very advanced drones that are impervious to uh, the drone killing technology that the US have got and whatnot don't you think that that in itself is first of all fascinating and second of all very concerning we're talking about military training ranges being infiltrated by objects that they have no idea how to stop them and they don't have a clue what they are and in a lot of cases actually behaving in ways that defy explanation really bizarre stuff so former navy fighter pilot ryan graves actually served with these aviators that were involved in this 2014 near collision now ryan graves is not only a pilot but a truly exceptional pilot. He was the only member of his officer candidate school class that was selected to fly fighter jets, uh, and Ryan Graves went through the ranks very rapidly. And he flew his first combat mission less than two weeks after completing training. And by all accounts, is a, a very respected uh, pilot with with a, a you know a lot of skill in what he does. So we're not talking about somebody who was just a you know new recruit new to the job and and made some mistakes. we're talking about somebody who's highly respected and and very highly qualified and uh, Ryan Graves has been a major voice in advocating for better discussion and analysis of what's actually going on with these Uap and UFOs due to having witnessed these things personally repeatedly almost every day for a year, I think he said in the past and uh, top Pentagon official Scott Bray recently just confirmed in the congressional hearing that I've been talking about a lot recently, that there have been 11 near misses reported with UAP, although thankfully no collisions, at least as far as we know, but that's what they're saying, that there's been 11 near misses reported with these objects. Now, what is certain to me is that there is a genuine risk there. Whatever you think the explanation is for these objects, that is a risk. You know, if you've got military pilots and potentially commercial pilots too, You know, I wouldn't want to be zipping around in a jet knowing that there are other objects which we have no idea how to explain just hanging around in in the area that we're supposed to be training in. I mean, just think about that for a second. You know, highly secured military training ranges, hundreds of miles off the coast in some cases, not the easiest place really to get an airborne object into. I mean, if you're a pilot, you're not going... You know, you're not going anywhere near. If you're a private pilot flying your little aircraft around as a hobbyist, you're not going near that training range. You'd have to be absolutely insane to do that. If you're a drone pilot, good luck getting your drone out there in the first place. Where are you going to launch it from? You know, so how on earth are these unidentified objects just appearing day in, day out, and being witnessed by top pilots, detected on the jet sensor systems and others? It's a, it's a real concern you know and, and actually it was confirmed in that congressional hearing as well as well as loads of other statements and things like that which may have been a bit questionable whatnot and um, it was confirmed that a lot of these these objects that have been detected have been picked up on sensor systems etc as well it's not just somebody saw it with their own eyes we're talking about multiple data points it's a concern it's a it's a real mystery and you know it really is a logical expectation that we should want to find out what the hell's going on there. You know, if I was expected to fly a jet through there, I would really want to figure out what's going on and to try and figure this stuff out. But anyway, the article goes on to give some some specific witness accounts, which I thought were really interesting. So we'll go into that. But frustratingly and, and sometimes a bit hilariously redacted. So the redactions do make for some interesting reading here. But let's go through them. So, in one UFO incident, an aviator reported that he had never seen anything like this before. Doesn't sound like a balloon to me, that. Just saying. Anyway, carrying on. In another encounter, an aviator noticed an object with flight characteristics unlike anything I had seen in my redacted years of redacted. So that, that implies a particularly anomalous encounter. Definitely doesn't sound like how you would describe if you witnessed a drone or a balloon or something of that nature. Just saying. Yet another pilot's report states that, quote, she had never seen redacted like it. The UFO did not change position like an aircraft would and was too high to be a ship, unquote. So I think that that was quite an interesting one. Never seen redacted like it. Well, what word could be redacted there? There's always this guessing game, isn't there, with redactions, like trying to do the mental gymnastics to try and figure out what could have been in that space. But very interesting comment there. And the last one. For fighter pilots armed with an array of advanced sensors, the confusion and bewilderment reflected in the reports is striking. One aviator had a difficult time explaining the redacted. Uh, that's quite a hilarious one what what could that mean i don't know in another incident a pilot could only describe a ufo in a puzzled voice over the radio yet another aviator described a ufo that appeared as odd as it sounds to be redacted (laughs) that one really made me laugh it sets it up doesn't it you know it appeared as bizarre as it sounds to be and then we're not going to tell you what that actual word is a bit frustrating on the redaction side of things there but still you can read between the lines very interesting indeed brilliant article make sure you check it out and uh, if you're interested in really detailed um, mathematical and scientific investigation into some of those UFO videos check out Marek's work in general Um, absolutely fascinating and uh, you can find him if you type in Marek it's M-A-R-I-K Marek von Rennenkampf and um, yeah definitely worth checking out his very very detailed analysis and his back and forth with some of the debunkers to really dig into the technical details of these videos and uh, I've learned a lot from doing that so I thought I'd recommend it. Anyway moving on from that this is a bit of a strange one to report on actually so basically last week uh, there was a video um, shared Uh, by ross coltart and and a few others as well uh, which was basically posted with the caption uh, nasa forgot to turn the cameras off or something along the lines of that kind of paraphrasing a bit there and what the video showed was an object basically distant ball of light which seemed to Approach the Earth at a certain angle. It's kind of like a satellite picture, you know, like a, from the space station or something like that. And you can see the Earth in the in the distance, and then this this object approaches like a, a light, a ball of light type of thing. Uh, it approaches at a certain angle, then stops, changes course, and actually moves off at a different angle. So basically, behaving in a way that clearly isn't a satellite or kind of some kind of space junk. But don't get yourself too excited, because the video was basically. As I say, take, from the looks of it taken from some kind of NASA satellite or NASA observation station in space outside of the Earth's atmosphere. And to be honest, I was initially a bit suspicious of this video because it had been posted without any background, any context or anything like that. And you'd think that if it was a real NASA video like that, it would have actually come come out with you know the the location of the satellite exactly the source where it came from the background information basically so that you know that the due diligence has actually been done and i just want to make it clear i'm not criticizing ross Coulter at all for posting this footage because i did find it interesting as well and it looks quite remarkable on a first glance um and there's nothing wrong with posting footage especially if you do you know do do a bit of homework and and, and basically try and and, and, you know verify it a little bit but with something as intriguing as that i do understand why people were keen to talk about it in this kind of thing and especially because it it basically it turned out to be a fake video and uh, and ross and a couple of the other people who had posted it basically uh, did a follow-up tweet saying look apologies that one turns out to be a fake video after doing some digging and um you know all's well that ends well but What it actually was, was a a legit piece of NASA footage that had been then doctored to include this object. So it looks super believable when you see the footage, because it is actually a NASA piece of film. And you're thinking to yourself, wow, this this could be the actual one, you know, some kind of... But what it made me think about is kind of the standards that we should, in my opinion at least, expect from people posting videos, you know we were expected to take a video on board as being an extraordinary piece of footage, but we can't, again, in my opinion, I just don't think we can take anything on board really without the background information. Very, you know, very importantly, in my if we're going to, if we're going to criticize people like Bray and Moultrie at the hearing for, which I've done, you know, for not including the bigger picture as part of an investigation, like the Jeremy Corbell green triangle video, you know we criticize or i criticized and a few other people have had on the show have criticized the fact that they didn't seem to have looked at the bigger picture with that particular case they just tried to debunk it based on uh, another separate case where it looks kind of similar through the same equipment and if we're going to criticize them for doing that we sort of have to apply those same standards to ourselves. you know and we can we can accept that footage is legit only if that proper due diligence has actually been done to verify the source of that video, the chain of custody, where has it come from? Have the checks been done to make sure that it's not AI, um, you know, uh, like a sorry CGI, and make sure that it's not fake. And as we know from a lot of other cases, like for example the Tac Nimitz incident, you know, the video uh, on its own is actually not that remarkable as a piece of evidence. You know, it's, it's unclear what the object is. It is blurry. You can't really tell a great deal from that video alone but what is extremely compelling about that video is when you add in all the rest of that bigger picture and um, you know the multiple witnesses the various pieces of sensor equipment which have picked this thing up when you look at it in that bigger context that video becomes extremely interesting and what that does for me it, it really shows once again which i've kind of banged on about this in the past but still this just goes even further to reaffirm that it shows the absolute importance of that bigger picture and that's the problem i have with these clips that go around on the internet without any background without any context without any you know chain of custody of where the video has come from you know without all of that a video might appear to show something extraordinary but without knowing the exact context of of how that video came about and so on i do think it's kind of impossible to really put too much faith into any one of these clips without that bigger picture and i I do think sometimes those videos kind of going viral can do a bit more harm than good unfortunately and as we know there's plenty of channels out there you know twitter accounts and, and youtube channels and so on that that post you know unverified unvetted footage without any kind of context and bigger picture and i would suggest that probably 90 odd percent of those are completely fake You know cgi and all it's doing really is just serving up a you know a a nice easy target for the, the debunkers and things like that it doesn't really help anybody i don't think imagine you're just an interested member of the public okay now and again you dip your toe in the waters of the ufo topic and i know people that this has happened to by the way with this specific video so Imagine you're in you're that person. You're interested in the UFO topic now and again. You sort of dip in. You see that footage and you think, you know, everybody on UFO Twitter hashtag UFO Twitter is posting it, saying how amazing it is, and blah blah blah. And then you find out a couple of days later that that video is fake. It does kind of damage your trust in the UFO topic in general, I think. And there's always that risk that these kind of videos being posted in a rush to find the next exciting video that we have to make sure that that relevant homework has been done because it can put people off it can cause people to end up being jaded and you know people outside the topic or people in the topic as well it just muddies the waters so you know at the end of the day with these hundreds and hundreds of these type of clips going around all the time you know it's, it's quite difficult to decipher the good stuff from the bad and it's sort of playing into the hands of the debunkers, really giving them easy targets. You know. Having said that, though, you know, even in that kind of storm of of unbelievable quantities of fake clips and misidentification clips, there th- there could well be some clips out there, and I'm sure there is that do show something genuinely anomalous. I mean, if you listen to Lou Azondo, he said recently on a. Um, on on an interview bearing in mind just for anybody who doesn't I'm sure everybody knows by now if you listen to my show but Lou Elizondo is the the former counterintelligence and security chief for RSAP the Pentagon's uh, biggest UFO program that we're aware of in in decades and then also went on to temporarily be the head of RSAP and the director of ATIP which was a uh, initially a Smaller portfolio within ORSAP, which focused on UFO, uh, military UFO cases with large amounts of bigger picture data, which is kind of what I'm all about. Um, And obviously, Lou Elizondo has had access to a lot of information on the inside that he can't talk about. And he has said in interviews recently that um, there is a video that is public that people talk about on the internet that shows a triangle during the day. It's a clear triangle craft. And that is actually was verified when, when he was on the inside during his time with a tip that was verified as being a legit video. And it is actually out there in the public uh, sphere. And that's just a good example of how, even though there are a lot of uh, dodgy clips out there, there are actually also videos doing the rounds, which may look sort of even even too good to be true, you know, clear video of a, of a triangular craft and, that has actually been verified by the people in this, you know, Pentagon UFO program as being a legit video of an actual anomalous triangular craft. And that's out there somewhere. We just don't know what it is. Absolutely fascinating. And that's kind of the other side of this. You know, yeah, there's a lot of dodgy CGI clips, but somewhere hidden hidden amongst all of that, there are potentially some very clear, real uh, photographs and, and videos of these things. But the problem is it's so difficult to determine and the problem with it really is that if you see a really clear hd picture of our video of a triangular craft you're probably just going to assume that it is cgi because there are so many out there so that's always been a a particularly interesting thing that you know there's actually some really compelling videos out there which everybody dismisses as fake because they're too good to be true so anyway that that's just the the flip side of that coin so i thought i'd add that in there moving on then so there's been a, a video uh, that a lot of people have been talking about uh, with you know pretty uh, some some pretty uh, heightened uh, emotions going on with this one and uh, I just thought I'd mention it briefly because I did think it was a, an interesting conversation. Uh we'll get into the detail of my take on it in a minute. So uh, Kurt Jai with his fantastic uh, podcast and uh, YouTube channel Theories of Everything uh, has had some pretty big names within the UFO topic uh, as as you know guests for to be interviewed and this particular uh, video was a little bit different it was Mick West the kind of notorious um debunker in in the UFO topic having a exchange of ideas essentially with Eric Weinstein who is a prominent member of the kind of intellectual community he's a PhD he has a phd in mathematical physics uh, he, basically during this interview uh, during this video he describes himself as as a, as a mathematician uh, but being a very prominent and well known member of the kind of intellectual communities he's taken part in a lot of debates with other intellectuals and things like that and um, he's become quite a popular figure in terms of being a, a, a you know an intellectual in in the forefront and, um, Kurt, uh, whose channel this was on describes it as rather than a debate as a, as a theolocution. Now that basically is a term that I'd never heard of to be quite frank. And what it actually means is it's rather than it being a debate, which is supposed to be more of a bringing down each other's ideas and trying to prove each other wrong. It's more just like a sharing of ideas in a slightly more constructive format, um, so that's worth bearing in mind. It was this was this video was never actually meant to be like a debate with a winner or a loser or anything like that. It's more just an exchange of ideas as I kind of uh, mentioned a little bit earlier on. Now a lot of people really enjoyed this conversation and found it to be very grown up adult, you know, chat about about things and and all the rest of it. I'm going to be completely honest about this because this is how I am, you know, if I think think a certain way, I will put that forward and uh, I didn't love it. Uh, I thought it was... I listened to it all because I thought I should give it the the fair, you know, the time to, to go through the entire thing. There's been many videos that I've heard on Kurt's show that I've absolutely loved, like Salvatore Pais, for example, was a real game-changing, fascinating uh, conversation, and you could go on and on. The Lou Elizondo interviews that Kurt's done, brilliant. But this particular one, I, I, I struggle with it, I'll be honest. I found it a bit of a frustrating listen because the thing is, Mick West was kind of, you know presenting himself as a very reasonable guy who who kind of you know just looks at everything from a a, with an open mind and and definitely you know doesn't set out to debunk and explain away UFO videos and things like that but I don't think that's necessarily an actual reflection of the way that Mick looks into cases and I'm saying this from the point of view I don't hate Mick West a lot of people can't stand the man uh, and all the rest of it I actually don't have that much of a problem with him. I think, as I've said before, you can't have an echo chamber. The UFO topic has to involve input from people who are more sceptical. And even, it's a scale, isn't it? So, like, on the one hand, you've got your sceptical people who look into things with a sceptical attitude, which I think is healthy. And then you get to the far end of that and you end up in debunking territory, which, to me is setting out with a preconceived conclusion in mind and then you just figure out how you're going to reach that conclusion. And to me, that is kind of what happens with a lot of Mick West's videos, uh, his commentary in general, is he, he's already decided that this is a ridiculous notion. And he's just trying to navigate the best way to arrive at that conclusion. Now, like I say, I don't have a personal problem with Mick West. I'm more than happy to criticise his conclusions and his methods, but I don't have a personal issue with him. In fact, I've actually had some fairly pleasant interactions with Mick on Twitter. And I think one thing that you have to respect about Mick West is that he doesn't actually start insulting people. I I don't really there's been a few that have been on the edge, but in generally I don't think he's ever called anybody a name. Like he's never referred to somebody as being an idiot or something like that and that is definitely something that you can't say for a lot of debunking type of people on Twitter and I think in that regard Mick actually does set quite a good example. But as I say, I think The reason I struggled with this particular conversation is because you've got Mick West coming from the angle that I've just mentioned. But obviously, he's trying to put himself across as a lot more reasonable than I think he actually really is. And that unfortunately, there wasn't really a lot that Eric Weinstein could come back with because some of the specifics of the cases mentioned... I don't think Eric was actually that knowledgeable about which is fine I mean he's he he's a self proclaimed newcomer to the topic but it just seemed a bit of an odd choice of of a person to have going up against Mick West in talking about these things and again it doesn't have to be a a winner or a loser debate type of situation but for example Mick West talked about Malmstrom and Robert Salas and he, he referred to that case as falling apart under scrutiny and Eric just wasn't really knowledgeable about that topic enough to actually have any kind of a retort so for me it would have made a lot more sense to have somebody who is um not by the way I'm not talking about somebody like me because I'm a relative newcomer to this topic I've been in this for a few years I kind of pride myself that I've done a fair bit of research in that time but you know if you've got somebody like who's been in the topic for like 10 years very knowledgeable about all these different cases and has looked into them as much in as much detail as as what Mick has because to be fair to Mick he does his homework I think that would have been a a more logical choice I mean Eric Weinstein is a very intelligent dude but he's not that well educated on this particular topic yet because he's relatively new to it so it just seemed a bit of a mismatch really and Mick also referred to RSAP as a um, silly little program which is just inaccurate in my opinion and again you know with the people the other people involved in this video not really having much to come back with because they're not familiar with the ins and outs of it that that comment just was allowed to slide and I, I think that is a good indication of, of what Mick West's actual approach really is there it's as soon as you refer to something as silly uh, bear in mind it might have been silly i've not got the exact quote i did try and go back and find it but it's a two hour video so i couldn't find it but it was either silly little program or stupid little program which either one is just as bad um, as soon as you try and minimize something like that ridicule something it, it just gives away your bias straight away And it's, in my opinion, that's just inaccurate and it's disrespectful to the individuals involved who are some of the, you know, some very top class scientists who have been entrusted with government work on, um, you know, propulsion systems of rockets and some of the top weapon systems that the military use. Is Is it really a silly little program, a stupid little program when you've got people like that involved? I don't think it is. And and that kind of language is just a bit bizarre. I mean, imagine if I was talking about one of Mick West's um, analysis videos on the on the um, the gimbal, say, and I was like, Mick West made this stupid little video about the gimbal. I mean, it's a very odd choice of language, isn't it? And to me, it really gives away the bias that's there. Um, but one thing that I found quite interesting about this was that Mick did actually say that the Nimitz case is his number one case that he struggles to find an explanation for when he was kind of pressed on that by eric and i thought that was a very interesting point actually because mick west seems to claim kind of multiple times for for this particular in this interview and i've also heard him talk about this before as well that most ufos reside in the low information zone the liz now What was very interesting about that particular admission there from Mick about the Nimitz case as being the most intriguing unsolved case that you can't explain is that the Nimitz case represents to me the most data-rich case, the most data-dense case out of all the UFO cases. And this idea that Mick tries to put across is that actually the only reason that a lot of these videos are actually unidentified is because we've not got enough information. They're in the law information zone, so there's nothing we can do with it. And if you have that information, it would be easily explainable. And he uses various examples as to cases that had low information and then the information became available and then he had an explanation to explain it away as something prosaic, which, as I say, I think is the actual the goal from the beginning, personally, um, when when Mick and other debunkers approach these kinds of things. However... The problem is there is that the Nimitz case is the most data dense case out of all of the UFO cases. And that actually suggests that when you really do get a case with sufficient data density to be able to actually analyze it and, and you know the, the proper amount of data and multiple witness testimonies and so on, it, it can still be and indeed is still in this case an unexplainable, remarkable incident. And this is by Mick's own admission. This is the case that he struggled to, uh, to explain, uh, uh, you know, more so than any other case. And this is a case with more information and more data than all the others. So this low information zone method of trying to explain away UFO cases by saying it's just that we don't have a lot of data on them, that's the reason they're unidentified, it just doesn't hold water when you think of it like that. Because some of the most fascinating... Uh, Information comes from things like the Nimitz, which has got tons of information and it's still unidentified. Bearing in mind that some of the data from that case has never even been seen by the public, it's classified radar data, sensor data that has been considered as part of the investigations by the Pentagon. And even having considered the radar data, they still to this day conclude that that is an unexplainable case. So that's why I've gone on and on about the Nimitz case so much on the podcast in the past, because it's such an important case for that reason that nobody can say that's a low information case. It's very, very high on information. It's very high on witness testimony. There's even more compelling data that we can't see because it's classified. And even the people who've seen the classified data done a thorough investigation, they can't explain what was going on in that particular case. That's why it's so important. I used the phrase the other day, when I was talking to a friend um, that the Nimitz case is like kryptonite to the debunkers. You know, it's such an important case for that reason, because all of these low, low information uh, explanations do just kind of fall apart. And, you know, the thing is is that i think there's a little bit of an effort from bray and moultrie to go down that same explanation as well of the low information zone um you know method uh, of explaining away ufo cases and that's evidenced by the fact that during the congressional hearing that video that they brought up was uh, very very low on information it was literally just a fighter jet going along and the little blob goes past the window at an unbelievable speed, so fast that you really have to work hard to pause it to even see the thing. And uh, Bray actually says during the hearing that um, that's in some cases we have even less than that. Now, it's very interesting that you would choose a, such a low information case to present at a hearing like that. Because it's quite clear that there are other cases that they have had access to, like the Nimitz, for example, which are very high information cases. But it seems like there's a bit of an effort there to actually present it as, oh, they're all just low information. If we had better information, we'd be able to immediately tell what it is and get to the bottom of it. But that's actually not the case. Some of these cases are high information cases. And to me, a little bit dodgy that they chose such a low information case. I don't believe this is personal interpretation other people would look at this differently but i don't believe a lot of the cases that they have are low information like that i think it was just presented as an example of a low information case to give the impression that that is why these things are unexplained because we just don't have enough data and information actually doesn't make sense when you consider some of the other um points that bray himself said such as the fact that a lot of these cases have multiple sensor data multiple witnesses um, so why is it that they've shown one that has very very little information uh, and tried to make out that that is indicative of the type of cases that they're looking at for the majority it just seems a bit dodgy and i wonder if they're going down that low information zone method to try and minimize the uh, the interest there but anyway moving on from that the, the point is it doesn't really matter how many ufo cases that there is you know a, a truly unremarkable object being on display you know showing characteristics that seem impossible you could have a thousand of those cases or you could have one case but all you really need is one case that in itself is mind-blowing it's the old you know classic thing of like debunkers can be right 99% of the time but it only needs that one percent of the cases to be truly truly fascinating for this to be a genuine mystery and that's why the Nimitz case in my opinion is so important but just to finish off on, like I say, I mean, I, I wasn't sort of overly sure about this this whole concept, really. I found it a bit of an unusual choice. Don't get me wrong, I'm very happy that Eric, Eric Weinstein and, and, and people within the intellectual community are coming into the topic. And I've, I've followed Eric Weinstein's journey into UFOs, and, and I do check out what he says about it. But just the choice of, of individuals having this conversation, Mick, Mick West and Eric Weinstein, for me, it was just a bit of a strange match. And um, I, I sort of struggled to, to get through it, really, to an extent, if I'm being completely honest. But Eric Weinstein said that um, we should all have a part of us that is sceptical and a part of us that is imaginative. I'm paraphrasing that, but it was basically along those lines. And to be honest, I thought that was a great point. I thought I really couldn't agree more with that. That's always been my approach. Like I'm not scared of of speculating and really going out there into sci-fi territory of trying to imagine what could be possible out there in the universe, you know, because I don't think that that takes anything away from having a, a, a you know, reasonable, rational, scientific method of looking at this topic you can separate the two and do both i think sometimes people worry that if they speculate people won't take their actual serious analysis seriously enough you know so people get locked into like really logical and rational like data analysis and then they won't speculate because they feel like that's going to affect people's uh, perception of them or whatever i don't think you need to do that i think it's perfectly fine to have a a part of you that is skeptical and rational and everything you do should be grounded in that that kind of way of thinking but also there's nothing wrong with a bit of imagination a bit of trying to imagine what could be possible and then thinking actually yeah now i imagine that i wonder if we could prove that and then you use your scientific more skeptical and rational side to actually try and get to the bottom of whether it could actually be possible and when you do think about like i was saying earlier about the james webb telescope and the the sheer scale of the universe, and it is really humbling to imagine what could be out there. And I think that's where the imagination comes in and, and, and the, the, the ability to be able to be open-minded and, and speculate without fear. There's nothing wrong with that, you know, but or, or at the same time, you should always, in my opinion anyway, stay, stay grounded and not let your imagination kind of take over. It's, it's a balance, isn't it, at the end of the day? Um, so I thought that was a good little point to end on right there now um that's about all we've got time for for today so i just want to say um uh, thank you for tuning in and checking it out and if you're still here right the way to the end of the podcast you clearly are a hardcore listener of the podcast so thank you very much for joining me all the way to the end i hope you found it interesting if you do want to support the podcast i have a patreon account that's patreon um dot com forward slash ufo thinker and you can support the podcast for as little as a couple of bucks a month and you get early access to episodes all my episodes go out a few days earlier on there and you can also get access to some exclusive episodes that only go on patreon as well and there's going to be a lot more of that as we go along too and i really appreciate the support I try to not have any adverts and anything that disrupts the flow of the the shows that I do. So the Patreon allows me to do that. I don't have to rely on any ad revenue or anything to kind of keep the podcast going and growing. Uh, so Patreon really does help from that that point of view. So if you do, if you're in a position to do so, please go and support. If not, don't worry. The podcast is always going to be free for everybody to check out and uh, i'm going to leave it there for now so i will see you guys in the next episode till then take it easy stay curious i'll catch you in the next one you you